everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 87. My name is Charles Lowell, a developer here at the Frontside and your podcast host in training. Uh, joining to me today and hosting the podcast is Elric Ryan. Hello, Elric. Hey, what's up, Charles? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Are you pretty, uh, are you pretty excited? Oh, I'm, I'm very excited for this podcast because this is like a topic that I've heard a lot about but don't know much about. And it just seems so awesome that I'm just very stoked to hear all the details today. Yeah, me too. Especially because of who's going to be giving us those details. He's one of the kindest, smartest, most humble and wonderful people that I've had the pleasure of meeting, Mr. Dan Gephardt. So hello, Dan. Hey, Charles. Hey, Elric. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed listening to these podcasts. It's nice to be part of one. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's good to have you finally on the show. You know, we talk over chat and we talk over email and we meet every once in a while in conferences. And uh, it's great to get to share more widely some of the great conversations that always arise uh, in all of those contexts. So for those uh, who don't know you, you are a founder at Cerebris and that is uh, your company which is involved very heavily in a lot of open source projects that people are probably familiar with. One of them that we're going to be talking about today is JSON API. Uh, I bet most people didn't know that you are, you know, one of the biggest driving factors behind, you know, both the specification and several of the implementations out there. Yeah, yeah, that's been a pretty core focus of my open source work for the last few years, actually. The JSON API spec, which is... Uh, perhaps a somewhat confusing name for those who aren't familiar with it. It was, uh, it was started by uh, Yehuda Katz in almost uh, three, three and a half years ago, I think now, and hit 1.0 a couple years ago and has stabilized since then. And we've uh, seen a lot of interesting implementations on top of it. And there's some uh, exciting stuff that's actually coming soon uh, to the spec that I'd like to share with you guys today. Yeah. To give us a little bit of context, why? What pain uh, am I experiencing that JSON API uh, is going to solve or it's going to address or give me, give me tools to deal with? One of its uh, prime motivators is the elimination of bike shedding. There's a lot of trivial decisions that are made with every implementation of an API and JSON API makes a lot of those decisions for you about how uh, to structure your document, how to include relationships and links and metadata in a resource, how to represent relationships from has one, has many, even polymorphic relationships, how to type that data. JSON API has opinions about all these things at the document structure level. And it also has opinions about protocol usage, how to uh, use HTTP together with this media type to uh, make requests and for servers to return responses. So how to create a resource, how to add resources to a relationship, things like that. So, Oh, so it's not just, hey, this is a serialization format. It's very much like also delving into the individual interactions and how they should be structured, like kind of more about the conversation between client and server. Yeah, yeah. So in that way, it is um, somewhat unusual as a media type that covers both. Can you dig into that a little bit? Because I'm very curious, like when something that especially made my ears prick up uh, was when you said it tells you 
how to, for example, add relationships to a resource? What would that look like? A lot of the uh, the influences behind uh, uh, JSON API are uh, hypermedia related. It's 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 influenced by RESTful principles and includes a lot of uh, hypermedia aspects. So one aspect is uh, how a resource represents uh, relationships in terms of the data in in the document, the type and the ID that say. It, specify a linkage to that to another resource in the same document but it can also include uh, links uh, to discover those uh, relationships uh, so there's a self-link for a relationship and a related link for a relationship and the, the self-link will return the data for that relationship um, in the the type ID pairs and the related link will return the related resources. So the spec doesn't have strong requirements or any requirements about URL usage, but instead it describes where to find resources through links, through these hypermedia links. And so if you want to, say, add records to a relationship, you'd follow the, the self-link for that relationship when you've that that was returned with a resource and then the spec describes how to you know you would send a post to that endpoint and you would include the relationship data in ter- in the terms of uh, type and id pairs so it gets down to that level of uh, specification so there it removes the the ambiguity of how to interact with these resources and mutate them and retrieve them I see. And so is there an idea then that you are going to explicitly model the relationships as individual resources? Or is that the recommendation or the requirement? Uh, yeah. So the, the, the link of for a relationship would point to an endpoint, which would then model the relationships that are represented at that, that endpoint. For, so the, say, just to speak a little more concretely, because I think this starts to sound a little esoteric, uh, or certainly makes, makes, um, so, uh, some simple concepts sound a lot more esoteric than they really need to be. So let's just talk about an example. Let's say we're, we're talking about articles and comments and, and maybe an author, right? So, Let's say you you fetch um, a collection of articles from an article's endpoint, and for each article w- within the article resource, you would have a relationships uh, member, which would have an, include comments, and then the comments could have a, a, a links, which and one of the links would be a self link and a related link, and the related link would could be followed to then retrieve all the comments for that particular article. So you could also, if you wanted to add a new comment for that article, you can post to the self-link for that relationship. So you'd post to the uh, whatever that, that endpoint is that's specified. So maybe it's articles one, uh, articles slash one slash comments. It could be anything that you want. Now, now the spec does have some recommendations to make everything fit nicely, like for, in terms of the URL design patterns and such, but those are not in any means by any means required, but having those recommendations just eliminates more bike shedding opportunities. So it's, uh, it's, we, we find it, it, 
people who are gravitate towards the spec really appreciate having a lot of these trivial decisions made for them. So even if we don't want to come down and be hard line about requiring those particular answers, we can at least provide some guidance for how things can work together nicely. And, and so there's a whole recommendation section on the, on the site for things like URL design patterns. Right. So things that aren't prescribed, but, you know, these are kind of best practices that are, are recognized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, a question then that comes to mind is, you know, it sounds like uh, JSON API, it solves a lot of these bike sheds or just kind of comes in and, and, you know, takes one side or the other for, for modeling both the resources and the relationships between those resources. So there's, you know, they're kind of, I don't want to call it a schema, um, but it's very, the, the, the boundaries around what is in which resource are very clear. Uh, and where they live and how, how they connect together. And I was hoping we could maybe contrast that with some, you know, another approach, which has also become very popular. And that's the, the GraphQL approach where you're essentially assembling views at runtime, you know, for the client. So it's very easy to marshal the data that you need to present to your view because you've got only one endpoint as opposed to having to kind of coordinate between them. And so I can understand the appeal of that. And I was wondering, you know, you know, if you have any insight into this, what the trade-offs are between the systems and what are some of the capabilities that one can do that the other can't. Yeah, sure. I, I'm glad you, you brought that up because um, I, I feel like GraphQL is a, has become a real juggernaut and not least because of its marketing and uh, it's uh, been very effective in being marketed as for its its ease of use to developers and its capabilities versus REST, um, as if uh, a RESTful system uh, can't possibly achieve the same outcomes or the same efficiencies. So I'm glad to to compare and contrast the two a bit. Uh, and and one of the to be honest, one of our short-term goals is to better tell this story on the JSON API site, which was always uh, kind of a uh, more technical, specy site than a marketing mm-hmm. site, and uh, right. that hasn't really helped its uptake as much as uh, as it could. As you know, some of the GraphQL sites are very slick and polished. So anyway, just to get let's get down to it. So uh, GraphQL allows you to to basically define the data that you want for a particular view and that can bring together multiple related resources and it defines a way to specify exactly which fields you want in that graph of resources. So you can specify, uh, we'll just stick with our articles, comments, and authors example, you can specify that you want a collection of articles and perhaps the the comments related to them and the authors, and you could have it all assembled in a single response. So JSON API also allows you to do just that. It allows you to make requests for multiple related resources to constrain the fields that are returned for each resource and to include all of these related resources in in a single document. The main difference in the representation is that JSON API requires that resources only be represented once in a single document. So GraphQL may have repetition of resources throughout the document that's returned. So for instance, 
your articles that may nest authors and those authors, you know, Charles Lowell uh, may have written three of the same, those articles and that representation of, of that author is going to be repeated in the JSON API compound document, which is the term for a document which has a primary data set uh, combined with related resources. Those that, that single author would only be returned once as a related resource. And the linkage between the primary data and the related resources would be established through the type ID pairs. And so instead of having the author represented three times, the, the same type ID pairs would just be providing that linkage to the same author and that author resource would only be represented once. So this happens to be ideal for client-side applications that, uh, number one, don't want to have, basically want to minimize the size of the payload that's sent. Um, number two, don't want to hand, have to handle repetition of data by doing extra processing of pushing the same record multiple times into a memory store that is keeping that data. I think that GraphQL is, is well-suited to applications that request data and um, display that data pretty much as returned uh, so that there is no intermediate holding onto that data in, say, a memory store for uh, later access. Um, basically, you know, it, it it's lines up well with, with uh, say, a, a component library like React, which wants to display that data that's returned from the server. And if it wants to display uh, that same collection again, it will simply request that collection again rather than and pretty much throw away the data once it's been rendered. Right. No, I can see that. Although this takes me back. I mean, Dan, you you and I might be some of the only folks who remember. I don't know if you ever did any like Microsoft Access programs. Yes, yes, I did, believe it or not. Yes, that's like... <laughs> and it's like, doesn't it feel like a little bit like the Access uh, pattern all over <laughs> again, where you have your components requesting data from like basically constructing a query and requesting it from yeah, the yeah. store? And then throwing it up on the screen. Well, you're going going deep there, but yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Definitely, there's that that same paradigm, and um, it's really powerful. It is, and it's, uh, it's you, pretty it's, accessible yeah. too because it's immediately it's a d- direct representation of what your um, what you've requested, and there's no intermediate processing. Mm-hmm. So, I guess the the question is right. whether that intermediate processing provides some value actually holding on to that data provides some value yeah. um, because as as far as I'm concerned the graphQL's great for that sort of rendering of dumb data where the data has no meaning except outside of the rendering but if you want to actually have models that have some intelligence of about that data then you want to use a store to keep those models in and you want to be able to reuse those models for other purposes. So, so what might be an example like to kind of what's a, what's a concrete use case that we can kind of ground this discussion? Yeah, on? let's, uh, I would say the the big one is offline. You simply can't have just, you know, dumb data that's useful in any way in an offline application or an optimistic application where, you are doing some things client side and 
only uh, say uh, undoing them if if a request fails. But you know if if, if your data is 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 dumb and only structured for a particular view, then all you can do with that is is redisplay that view. But if you understand the schema of your data and you that data is available in a store, then regardless of whether you have a network connection, you can actually display that data in different ways. You could, if that same article shows up in a collection on in a list, you could also display that article on its own in a different format with more fields. If you want to say edit, allow editing of that data, you could allow for an editor that's, you know, st- when your, your app's offline, allow changes to be made to that data and then redisplay it because you understand the fields that are in that data. Right. And then at some point later, then spool those changes back to the server. That's right. Yeah. So if, I mean, it almost sounds like, ironically, if a, a system like JSON API, where you have very concrete boundaries around each of the underlying resources in your data model, it allows you to essentially do rich querying on the client and not just the server. Yes. Yes. That's, that's absolutely true. Cause I true. feel like that's kind of like what you've just described to me. It's like, okay, now we have some sort of store over which we can map all kinds of different queries that are, you know, to our own own liking and, and there's no dependency on the server. Yeah. I mean, if you just want your uh, web app to be a, th- the, you know, a, a pretty much a view representation of what's on the server, then without any additional intel- intelligence, then GraphQL really lines up well with your needs because any extra processing you're doing is just not valuable to you. But but I think a lot of the really interesting things being done in client-side applications are where your your client application is preloaded with a lot of intelligence and rather autonomous, right. able to do things to make sense of, of data. And in that case, then thinking about it, uh, about the data only as it pertains to, to views is um, is not nearly as as powerful. Right. And so you could do something like that with GraphQL, but then you would have to essentially structure your queries such that they drew the boundaries around the individual resources anyway, rather than composing them on the server. You'd have to query them discreetly into a a store and then run your kind of local operations. But then I guess at that point, it's like, what are you doing? Yeah, you're still handling the extra, you're doing the extra processing of handling the, the repetition of data of any uh, nodes that repeat and such. And, you know, that's just extra processing you have to do. But but I agree that you, you certainly could structure your GraphQL queries to return data that is um, then loaded, say, into a store that really has awareness of that, the data types. But I don't think that is... But then you're kind of defeating the purpose, right? Yeah, it's not its, not its selling point and it's not its, its strong suit. So you've done a lot of work on, on the JSON API spec. You know, JSON API allows you to fetch discrete resources and their relationships, but still, you know, keeping one representation uh, of each resource in the payload. Uh, and so it's optimized for wanting to do client side processing and have intelligence based on, you know, these entities, which are in a store. Uh, and so you actually maintain a fairly mature at this point framework, uh, called orbit, 
which helps you do some of these things. Now, there's what Orbit does today, and I understand that you've got a lot of new features that are really exciting uh, that are coming down the pike. So, but let's before before we um, get into those, what is Orbit, and and what do you use it for, and how does it use uh, JSON API? Okay, great. Uh, so Orbit is a, a data access and synchronization library, which uh, sounds uh, sufficiently vague because it, it, it has a lot of low-level primitives for um, structuring uh, client-side data. It, it's also actually isomorphic and can be run on, on the server and node, so um, it's not e- even only used for, for client-side purposes, but that, that was its original uh, purpose. So the the abstractions that it includes are um, allow for uh, for synchronization of data changes across multiple sources of data. So a source of data might be uh, represented by, say, a, a JSON API server, a an in-memory store, an IndexedDB database in your browser, uh, local storage. All of these uh, sources of data can support uh, an Orbit interface, uh, which uh, provides their access to their data and also broadcasts uh, changes to that data. Uh, So in order to coordinate the changes across multiple uh, sources, say to... Uh, back up all of your data that's in memory to an index DB source. You, you can you can observe the changes on one source and then sync those changes up with another. So, for instance, um, let's say you want to structure an offline application, which um, you have an in memory store. Uh, you, which uses client-generated IDs, uh, which then syncs up with a back-end JSON API source. And every change that gets made to the memory store needs to be backed up. You could configure multiple coordination strategies between the sources to make sure that the data flows so that um, every change that is made to the store is immediately backed up to IndexedDB, and and if it can't be backed up, then it then it, it fails. There's a you know there there could be you can add some error handling, and then you can um, if when you're online, you can then um, also sync those changes up with the backend, and uh, so you're basically pushing those changes that are local to a remote store uh, and you're not slowing down your offline app, which you're communicating with optimistically and then only handling say failures, synchronization failures when, when there is a problem. And in order to handle those problems, uh, orbit sources are very deterministic about their, their tracking of changes uh, and they, they provide like get like rollback or, Capabilities, so you can look at the history of a of changes to a particular source and reset the the history at to any point there, and, and basically uh, handle um, conflicts and merges in in this in a, in a very Git like way. 
So um, the offline use case was the, the primary driver of Orbit's whole architecture. I realized that it needed to be able to to give you the tools to handle any any conflicts that happen when when changes get synced up, and also give you the different tools to model the all the different places data is kept in order to support the, the offline mode. So uh, that's kind of a, a broad overview of Orbit. There's there's a new guide uh, site, uh, orbitjs.com, for those who want to dig a little deeper into it. Um, the data is structured in the JSON API format internally to the store, and the operations, the standard data operations are all very much influenced by the standard JSON API protocols that are allowed in the, in the base spec. So for creating records, adding, uh, removing records, all the, you know, CRUD for both records and, and relationships. So that's where JSON API comes into orbit. Right. I see. And so the primary use case for orbit is offline then. Is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that was the primary driver, although it's not just the primary. Like I'm looking at this, it seems like you could use this in a lot of places where I might use Redux uh, or something like that, like on the server to model, I don't know, a chat app. Yeah, definitely. I have a bunch of different information streams coming together and... uh how am I going to merge them and make sense of them? Yeah, in fact, at its primitive level, um, Orbit has uh, essentially an async Redux-like model for queuing up changes and applying those changes. And the change sets are all immutable. And there's actually a lot of immutability used here throughout the library in order to ensure that the changes are that are applied are tracked deterministically. We just can't have those those changes uh, mutating on us. So there's definitely some um, overlap with Redux concepts in, in terms of the, the general task or action concepts in Redux. And, but instead of Redux's synchronous approach, everything in orbit is async. So what does that mean? I mean, yes, Redux is synchronous in the sense that there's a natural order to all actions. Are you saying like, I'm a, you know, for those of us familiar with kind of Redux is, are you saying there, it would be like a store where actions can be dispatched at any time? Or is it more like I've got multiple stores happening and I need to resolve them somehow? So each one is synchronous? How can I make sense of that? In Redux, the, the actual application of, of an action is, is, is performed synchronously. Right. So you can have a, but, but you can have asynchronous processes. Yes. But there's a natural order to the actions that those asynchronous processes yield, and then those are applied synchronously to the Redux store. Yeah. So the application, well, let's see, to compare and contrast Orbit and Redux, I guess you'd, you'd first have to say there's a primary difference of... It's more just to, to try and help to, to... I think there are a lot of people are familiar with Redux. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, I, I think it's a not so much to compare and contrast it, but just to use it as like an analogy of like, here's how it's the same, here how it's different. Yeah. I guess that's compare and contrast. <laughs> there you go. But, I'm not, but not in terms of like evaluating them as like, maybe, maybe I should be using this instead. Right, right. They are sort of on different levels, although... At, right. Uh, the, 
there are some primitives in orbit to it and it's shipped across multiple libraries. There are some primitives I think that could be useful well, well outside of the main orbit data application. But, um, anyway, the, the way that Redux state changes are, are applied, the function is synchronous is, is, is all I was getting at. And the in orbit, every state change that's applied to a source is asynchronous so that the result is not, it, you know, that is never applied immediately. You will only always, you'll always get a promise back and you'll never have that application happen immediately. Gotcha. So that, that's um, one, one clear distinction. Another is that Redux has a, has a big singleton uh, global state, right? For the, for the entire application. And Orbit very much has a model of state per source. And so there can be any number of sources in a particular application. And a source might be a, you know, an in-memory source, or it might represent a, uh, a browser storage and XDB, or, or might represent a socket that's streaming data in. All of these have state in at, that exists at, at different, you know, temporally distinct state that even if they all converge to, uh, to a common state, the orbit models them all as separately so that there's like a set of state per source. So there's, so I'm just contrasting the, the global app state that exists in Redux with the per source state. In orbit, it sounds like there's nothing that would be fundamentally incompatible of using orbit really in conjunction with Redux, where Redux is kind of a materialized view of all of your different data sources presented as what you're going to render off of, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You could use it in a similar way to like Redux Saga, I suppose, right? Where orbit is the fills the role of Saga, where it's doing the asynchronous actions and uh, the results flow back into the Redux uh, state, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm just imagining, you know, having kind of one big global atom, which is your Redux store. And I'm not saying prescribing this as a, you know, an optimal architecture, but I'm saying one way it could work is, you you know, it chooses, it picks and chooses what it and assembles off of the different sources as they become available, you know, as new data becomes available and the states change for those sources, it can be integrated into kind of a snapshot state, which is suitable for rendering or provides one view for rendering. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and you're basically talking about like the, the in-memory source perhaps merged with other application state, which is not not so resource specific. And, and that so that that is one that is possible to model. Or you could probably what I, what I think I might be hearing you saying is you could also just use another source, which is the merge itself. Yeah, I'm not sure how much we want to continue this 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 yeah. thought exercise <laughs> because the the architecture becomes almost uh, is is uh, not something I'd recommend. So I'm I'm trying to yeah, but I would actually like to explore how Orbit and Redux could be used together uh, optimally. And I, I've played around a bit with Redux, but I have not written uh, like a full-fledged application with it other than a toy right. application. So the I I might be, I definitely defer to you for uh, Redux best practices and such and how people are using it in real world applications. But I'd be really interested if, 
to to talk that over uh, again soon. Yeah, well, I don't. Cer- I just certainly don't count myself uh, a Redux expert, although we have uh, developed some applications with it. But uh, so maybe we can. We'll put that on the back burner, or something to explore later. I will say this: I find Redux to be both wonderful and terrible, kind of in the same way that Java is both wonderful and terrible. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, that was going to be my my question is like I've heard this is what I was very excited to hear about today was was orbit because um, I've heard so much ab- about it in terms of like the implementation of orbit into an application. What would that look like or f- from like a high level? Has anyone used orbit in a like a production app or have you built any like apps using orbit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there There are people using orbit with React with uh, Vue, with Angular, and with Ember, and there's a an integration library called um, Ember Orbit, which makes uh, Orbit usage really easy in in Ember. So, in a lot of ways, uh, Ember Orbit working with Ember Orbit feels a lot like working with Ember Data, but it allows you for a lot of a lot more flexibility and. Um, I suppose one of its strengths and, and weaknesses is that it it has uh, there's a lot of configuration that's possible because there's a lot of of possibilities. A lot of the, the internals are exposed of how how data gets synchronized, and so you can define your own strategies and sync up uh, sync up different sources. Um, so in terms of uh, how how it's actually used in an application, uh, you'd start by saying, you know, which by modeling your, your data in terms of, you know, the resources that are in the application. So like you'd have a schema that defines your articles, your comments, and your authors, just to keep that example going. And then that, that schema would be shared among all the sources in your application. And so you would have a, one source, say, that might be the in-memory source and another source that is the representing a browser storage. And so you could, say, swap out either local local storage source or an IndexedDB source and use either one in, to provide that backup role. And uh, so you would declare those sources, you'd connect them to each other with strategies um, so that say when one ch- when the memory store changes, you would then sync that change to the browser storage source. So then you'd have you know backup, and you'd be able to then refresh your page and view the same data you were looking at before. Now then, if you wire probably then want to wire up a remote source so that you're communicating with a server, so you bring in a, a JSON API source, and you you would then set up a new strategy for working with that. For, say, you'd have to decide, okay, when, when my memory store changes, do I want this change to happen optimistically or pessimistically? And by that, I mean, do I only want it to appear successful if it's been confirmed by the server? And depending upon whether you want it to be optimistic or pessimistic, you'd, you'd set up your strategies a little differently. So if you want it to be pessimistic, handle this change pessimistically, you'd want it to block success on on the successful completion of the pushing of that change to your remote server. Through, So you'd have the a set of strategies that define the behavior of the your application. And then you'd, you'd work with your you know, doing your CRUD operations probably pretty much directly with your memory source. 
And then if you wanted to say, do an edit in a form, you might uh, fork the store. Now the store keeps its data in an immutable data structures so that you, so that forking the store is very cheap. So you don't have a bunch of data that's copied. You're just keeping a pointer to that and getting a new pointer to that same immu- those same immutable data structures. And every time they get changed, the new, they have a new references created. So just it, it's, um, there's immutability under the hood, but you're pretty well insulated from the annoyances of working with the, the immutable data structures. So then you would say, you know, in that edit form, you'd make your changes, you'd then merge your changes back, uh, you'd get a, uh, a condensed uh, change set of operations that then uh, can flow through your strategies, flow through to uh, your backup source. It could flow through to the back to the server. I think it would feel pretty familiar for, to users of Ember data because uh, there are a lot of the the API influences came came from that library. But obviously, people are using just plain orbit with with other libraries with other frameworks and and finding it useful there but it definitely involves a little more configuration up front to do all that wiring that might be more implicit in a library like ember data and so um i understand that there's before we go uh, there is some pretty exciting new things coming in orbit do you feel like you're ready to, to, to mention a couple of those things or, or have we, or have they been kind of mixed in with the, the, the conversation? Well, there's, uh, let's see, I do, I have the guides up, which I, which I've mentioned, which is, which is, are pretty new in the last couple months. And I've eliminated a lot of the, in the last year, we did a, a, a rewrite and Orbit's now completely in TypeScript and there are no external dependencies. Uh, for a while there, I was using RxJS and observables uh, internally and immutable JS, and I've dropped those. So I've, there's now an internal immutable library. So it's it's lighter weight with fewer dependencies now. So I'm excited about that and finally feel like I I can uh, recommend people digging in and with the guides that are up. And I'm hoping to get out the API docs soon. And I will say I'm, I'm excited. I, we, I, I just got back from a retreat in Greece. Um, Seb Grosjean, who owns uh, the, the company Booking Sync, does this amazing thing with the Ember community where he, for the, the group that's working on Ember data, he, uh, he invites them for, you know, every year to come to his, uh, his family's, uh, place in, in Greece. He actually, they, he grew up working on, uh, working with his, his family on these rental properties, which was the inspiration for his company booking sync. And so this is like this fantastic, uh, opportunity that for us to get together and collaborate in a really nice place. And, and I had a really productive time the, this, this last week, this was the very first time I had gone. It was just fantastic. And I, and I worked with the Ember data team and Igor Terzek and I uh, spiked out some some interesting collaborations between Orbit and Ember Data. So I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing where those go, and hopefully we'll see a little bit more Orbit either directly or um, or just through through influence uh, appearing in Ember Data. So I'm I'm looking forward to working more closely with the the Ember Data team, and we'll see see what comes of that. 
Yeah, I for one am very excited uh, to see it. I'm resolved now. I'm just looking at these guides. These look fantastic, uh, and I'm resolved to to, to give Orbit at least uh, a try here, either in some of our applications or maybe try and spin up some some new ones and have it uh, be the the basis for some of the things I've, ideas I've been playing with. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, uh, and there's a Gitter channel um, which I hang out into. If you have any questions, so um, if or if anyone anyone out there does so um yeah hit me up that that's great charles yeah so and and so before we go if anyone is kind of interested in json api is interested in orbit is interested in cerebrus you know we we mentioned a lot of things that in one way or another map back to you uh how do we get in touch with or find out more about these these different uh, entities slash projects <laughs> Well, um, I'm, let's see, I'm, I'm at DGEB, D-G-E-B on Twitter. My company site is Cerebris.com, C-E-R-E-B-R-I-S.com. And uh, also check out OrbitJS.com for the new guides. And yeah, uh, reach out to me. I'm on the Ember core team. And so I'm also hanging out in the Ember community Slack too, if you want to D- depending upon what you want to talk with me about, I'm I'm in all these different places. So love to hear from y'all. All right. Well, fantastic. We'll make sure and uh, put those in the show notes. And uh, I guess uh, that's about it. Do you have any anything else uh, you wanted to leave folks with? Any any talks, papers, whatever uh, you're going to be. Um Big news coming coming around soon. Well, um, something that we didn't really uh, get a chance to talk about today, but which I'm really excited about, is JSON API operations, which is a mm. an extension to the base spec, which I'll be proposing very soon. There's there is a future to JSON API. Once it hit 1.0 a couple of years ago, it didn't just stop. We're we're looking at different ways to extend the base spec and use it for different in, different interesting purposes. And JSON API operations is, I think, one of the, the most interesting ones. Um, the idea is basically to allow for multiple requests that are specified in the base spec to be um, requested in a batch and performed transactionally on the server. And so the the, the spec will define what how each request gets uh, wrapped with an operation object, but it very much conforms with each operation, very much conforms with the base specs uh, concept of a request. So for implementations, there's a lot of opportunity to reuse uh, existing code for how to handle each particular operation, but to provide a whole new set of capabilities by allowing you to batch them together and process them transactionally because it just unlocks a ton of different things you can do all, all based on the same, you know, the same co- base concepts from JSON API. So I'm really excited to, to, um, to have something to announce soon about that. Oh, that does. That sounds like it's uh, going to solve. Sounds like it might solve a lot of problems that uh, um, are always associated uh, with those things. That's something that always comes up. What's our batch API look like? I don't think I've been on a project uh, that didn't have a 
you know, months long discussion about that <laughs> and ended up like kicking it down the road and then kind of just kind of flumping something in place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All those, all those messy edge cases where people figure out, well, how do we create multiple related records all together in a single request and uh, people do it ad hoc and do it with embedding and such. And we want to just, we want to standardize that in the same way that we've standardized the base operations. Yeah. Well, that is really exciting, Dan. So I wish you the best of luck and we'll be looking for it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on guys. Yeah, no, it was our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks. So with that, uh, we will say goodbye uh, to everybody. Goodbye, Elric. Goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, everybody listening, uh, you know, along at home. As always, you can get in touch with us. We're at the front side on Twitter, or you can see our website at frontside.io or just drop us a line at contact at frontside.io. Always love to hear from you with new podcast topics, uh, things, anything that you might be interested in. So look forward to hearing from y'all and see you next week. Bye.